Well, good morning. My name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here at New City Church. Thanks for being with us this morning. And uh, it's a rainy day, and you came out, and there's a lot of fun things going on uh, through our church body. Uh, Luke and Brooke, you're here, so I guess you haven't had a baby yet, right? I don't know why you're on the third row. Like, if this thing happens, you should have sat back on the back one, right? Um, but uh, if they get up quick, we'll just know what's going on, all right? Um, but man, we're so, we're so glad that you're here, and uh, we also have some very dear uh, guests and friends in the room this morning. Uh, we have several of Ron Miner's family and friends in the room, so can we just honor uh, them this morning? It's been a really tough, tough few weeks for them, really, really hard. And there's also, uh, I know, a lot of first and second time guests that have been coming for the past few weeks, and if we haven't had a chance to meet after service, I would love for you just to come up here and shake my hand and say hi. So I'll be standing up here, and if we haven't had a chance to do that, I would love to say hi and meet you and know your name and that sort of thing. But yeah, that's our friend Ron, and uh, Ron went to be with Jesus uh, this past week, and we had the privilege of honoring his life here yesterday. The house was full of people, and to our church family, uh, first impressions, staff and elders, the way that you loved on Lori and her family, I am so proud of this church. I am so proud of you. Thank you for the food that was prepared. Thank you for the hugs that were given. Uh, thank you for how, I mean, not even just yesterday, just leading up. Like, um, Lori gave me a great compliment yesterday, gave us a great compliment when she said, Matt, you told us that you, your goal was to love the snot out of us. And she goes, man, did you do that? And so uh, I am so thankful to be a part of a church that backs up what we say. But I wanted, I wanted to, um, if I could, draft off of Ron's life in my intro this morning, because over the past several weeks, I've been talking about these three words. What are those three words? Good job. Those are the people who've been here the most, all right? So, because, uh, I mean, not everybody comes every weekend, but there's three words that we're marching towards, and those three words are connect, serve, grow. And I've been defining those words because words are important, but the definitions of the words are even more important. And so I've been laying out a definition for us so that we can say, hey, oh, this is what that means. But it, Ron really, um, as many of you do in this room, he, he, he accomplished those three things. And so when we say connect, we simply just mean making church friends. And over and over again, I'm going to keep saying this, like it is vital that you have church friends. It's also great that you have friends that don't go to church. I have a lot of friends who don't go to church, right? I get to present Jesus to them in a variety of different environments, a variety of different ways. I get to be a friend to people who don't yet know Jesus. But my best friends are my church friends because I need to walk with people who are also walking towards Jesus. And I've said this several times. I'm going to keep saying that the direction of your friends will determine the direction of your life. Those, wherever your friends are walking, that's where you will eventually walk. And if you're walking with people who are choosing to do these next two words that I'll get to in a second, the speed at which you get there is a higher, uh, higher uh, ability. That you're going you're to get there quicker, right? You're going to get there quicker. And if you're in the room and you're someone who would say, hey, I have a history of addiction. I struggle with certain addictions. This is why church friends are so important for you because the direction of your friends determine the directions of your life. There are many people in this room here that if you hang out with them, you will not get drunk. You will not get high because they don't do those things. You don't make the joke, if you hang out with me, you won't get high or drunk, but you'll get fat because they ate a Taco Bell way too much, right? <laughs> but you need people who are following Jesus that you can say, hey, I'm gonna, I want to walk with you in this. The second word is that word serve. Ron served. Every week, Ron would get here about 8.30 in the morning, 
And he would do, as several did this morning, make sure that the stuff in your seat back was there, make sure the bulletins or the clipboards were where they're supposed to be, and then he would stand back there where Randy is sitting right now, and he would make sure you were greeted and you were given a bulletin when you walked in. And who was I talking to that this morning they said Ron was their first? You know, Michelle's parents, uh, Dwayne and Barbara uh, said that Ron was their first church friend at New City. He greeted them and he made them feel welcome. How fun is that? What a fun memory for Michelle's parents to have concerning Ron's ministry. This morning, uh, Ryan, uh, Ron's son, did for me what Ron has done ever since I've known him, and that's given me a bottle of water, which sits right here, right? Actually, I'm going to grab it so you know that I'm not lying. And also, I'm being sneaky, I left my coffee down. <laughs> um, but um, Ron, Ryan brought me what Ron, Ron always brought me a bottle of water in case my throat, right? So, Ryan, thank you for doing that for me. I appreciate you, bud. But serving is simply this. Joining a ministry team to make this church better. Don't you want to be a part of a church where the people serve and make it better? I mean, this morning during the first song, I walked over to Kid City, and I thanked every volunteer that's taking care of our kids right now. And they're not babysitting. They're inspiring our children to trust in and live like Jesus. And I want them to know that they're valuable. You heard me brag on the people that kept us dry when we were walking into church this morning. Do you want to get wet or do you want to be dry? course we want to be dry thank you umbrella people that did that they didn't have to do that today but they did and so how might you say as a as a member as a person who calls new city church home how do i get involved that's why we do two one of the reasons we do two services so you can go one and serve one you can go one and you can serve one you can even start today you get to start today you don't have to remember you get to all you got to do is go up to our first impressions i think mallory's doing this and said hey i'm going to be an usher second hour and don't go home so fast. The Chiefs don't play the 12. You've got plenty of time. <laughs> right? But serve. But serve. Making this church better. And finally, that word grow. That word grow. And man, that's something that Ron did. Right? Ron was not only a disciple. Ron was in a discipling group with Pastor Chris and a handful of other guys. But once he had been released from that process, what did he do? He made disciples. He went and did for others what was done for him. So he had Charlie, and he had Bobby, and he had Greg, and those are guys that he still walked with up until his last days. And so, guys, it's, a, it's, it's critical to the health of a church that we continue to take steps towards Jesus, that we continue to grow in our spiritual journey. And if this morning, you that are here paying attention and listening, God's not done with you. I don't know why you hear through the week. I don't know what voices that you allow to influence you. But if your heart is still beating and your lungs are still taking in air and if your blood is still flowing through your veins, God has a job, a mission for you. And the way that you find that out is through relationship with him. It's not just by going to church on Sunday. And that's a great miss in the, in our, in the great country that we live in is it's full of good-hearted people who simply want to define their faith by an hour on Sunday. That can't be it. If you have a one hour on Sunday faith, you have a one hour on Sunday faith. But that's not a faith that's growing and taking your next spiritual step. My hope today is that you would do that. And we've been doing this or trying to accomplish this through this uh, title that I'm calling Funny God. All right? And not funny like God's a great joke teller, funny, haha, but funny in the way that when God asks you to do something, and you see this all the time in Scripture, where God asks a person to do something, and their initial response is, real funny, God, ain't no way. Right? It happens all the time. God comes to Moses, tells him what he wants to do. Moses says, real funny, God, ain't no way. God comes to Abraham, real funny, ain't no way. God comes to you, and your response is like theirs, real funny, God, ain't no way. Can't talk to them. I could never do that. And we begin to tell God what God can and can't do. 
But what's fun in the scriptures is most times, most times, the person responds, their laughter is followed by obedience. They actually step into the very thing that God's inviting them into. And today I want to tell you a story about a fiery Jew who wrote most of your New Testament. His name is Paul, right? And so Paul, like if you open your Bible, if you were going to begin the New Testament, there's a great, great chance that Paul wrote or influenced the book that you're about to read. And this morning I want to tell you Paul's story, because I'm guessing if you were to read Paul's story, and at the conclusion of reading Paul's account, if God were to whisper to you, hey, I want you to experience and accomplish the same things of Paul, you would say, yeah, real funny, God, ain't no way. I don't want to go through that, nor do I think I could do that. But yet God used Paul in a remarkable way. Did you know that Paul spoke to commanders, to governors, to kings, to Caesar? Like God gave Paul this platform. And if God were to sit there and say to you, because remember, let me remind many of us how how this message series came about in my heart. I'm sitting in my chair outside my house one day, and I'm just, I'm reading that Torah gospel reading plan. And as a part of that time, uh, I was reading about God coming and telling Sarah, that her and Abraham, that in a year she was going to have a baby. And when Sarah hears that through the window, she laughs. Ain't no way. I'm 90 years old, and he's almost 100. Our time has gone, right? And Jesus calls her out for her laughing. And my thought was when I read that story is, God, what would you want to whisper to my heart? What do you want to whisper to my mind that my response would be, real funny, ain't no way? What would make me laugh? If you said it to me, what is that statement to you? What might God be trying to communicate to you even in this very moment? And your initial response is, there's no way I could ever do that. You you have got the wrong guy. You have got the wrong girl. And what I believe is that God asks ordinary people to do extraordinary things because he works through you. And the relationship that you think can never be restored, the thing that you, this dream that you think can never can be reality, listen, it can be when it's what God asks you to do. So Paul's story that we're going to look at today is found in the book of Acts. And Acts is written by a guy named Luke, same guy who wrote the gospel according to Luke. And Luke became a traveling companion of Paul, and eventually, about halfway through the book of Acts, he becomes uh, not uh, retelling the story, he becomes the uh, front row seat. And so much of Acts, uh, Luke is writing from first-hand experience. You see the verbiage change from what they did, what they did, what they did, what they did, to we were there, we were there, we were there. And so Paul, uh, Luke, I'll get my words out in a minute. Luke is telling this story. Now, this is really important. I'll put this on the screen for you. Acts is the story, not of Paul, and Acts is not the story of the disciples. Acts is the story of how these Holy Spirit-filled men and women flipped the world upside down with the good news of Jesus' life, Jesus' death, and Jesus' resurrection. Like the story of Acts is the story of God's working through the power of the Holy Spirit to change the world. And we learn through the scripture that God picks people, he chooses men and women who he indwells in to accomplish his task. Don't, don't get confused when you read the Bible and think it's about all these different people. It's not about all these different people. It's about how God loves the world so much that he uses all these different people to accomplish his will. And that's what you read when you read the book of Acts. And we're going to pick up in chapter 20, and I'm going to tell you the story this morning, all right? I'm going to tell you what happens and what goes down. And, um, but you're going to need to read these ch- six chapters this week if you want all the fine print details, okay? But in chapter 20, we learn that Paul is trying to make a specific date. He's trying to get back to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, okay? 
day of Pentecost is a really, really critical day in the life of Jewish people and in the day of the life of the early church. And for the Jewish person, it was the day that God gave Moses the Torah on the mountain. And on the day of Pentecost is when Moses came down the mountain and presented the law, the Torah, to the people. In the early church, it's the day that the Holy Spirit came. It's the day that Jesus sent his very spirit and it just took over the disciples and set the world on fire. And so this is a day where everybody wants to get back to Jerusalem because that was the command by the Father. Uh, when Moses came down the mountain, you got to get to Jerusalem to, for the specific day of worship. And so Paul, who was a Jewish guy who still obeys all the customs that he was taught and that he taught others, is getting back to Jerusalem or wanting to get back to Jerusalem for Pentecost. Now what Paul's doing in the meantime, the reason he's not in Jerusalem, is because Paul is traveling all over the place proclaiming the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. Right, and this is important to know that there were a lot of Jewish people who didn't live in Jerusalem. They lived in other parts of the world. And this is going to be a big part of this story, okay? So Paul is out uh, sharing the gospel of Jesus to all of these different areas, to both Jews and Gentiles. But he's trying to get to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost because he wants to be at the temple. All right? Now, here's the problem. His church friends don't want him to do that. His church friends keep saying, Paul, you, you can't do that because we're, get, we're all getting this vibe that something bad is going to happen to you there, right? Now, I call it a vibe. These people will be given dreams, and the Holy Spirit will send to his friends, his church friends, Paul, please don't go. I'll give you an example. Acts 21, verses 10 through 14. Some guy comes in. His name was uh, uh, Agabus, A-G-A-B-U-S. And Agabus walks in, and he takes Paul's belt off. A little weird, Right? little weird, he comes and he takes Paul's belt and he tied his own feet and hands and he said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this, way, the, in this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. So that's the word that this guy gives him. He takes Paul's belt and he ties his hands and his feet with it and he says, this is what's going to happen to the guy who owns this belt. Paul's a knucklehead. Are you a knucklehead? Paul, Paul struggled hearing this warning. And so I added in here the next part of Scripture where it says, Since Paul would not be persuaded, we said no more. People gave up. Except this, the Lord's will be done. Amen? And so these people are making a true statement to Paul about what's going to happen, but Paul also feels called on what's important for him to do, right? And so sometimes both things can be correct, that people are speaking to you about something they see, but yet you also feel that God is asking you to do something that you must do. And as we will see in this story, both of those things happen. Paul makes it to Jerusalem in time for the festival. When he gets there, he goes directly to the leadership's house. And when I say leadership, I'm talking about James, who was the brother of Jesus, okay, and the elders of the church in Jerusalem. So you have all of the Jewish folks in Jerusalem, but you also have this, this group, this sect, as they're calling it, of followers of Jesus who believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that he lived, that he died, that he lived again. And this, this church, this early church in Jerusalem, is led by James and the elders. Now, James was Jesus' brother. James didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah when Jesus lived. James believed that Jesus was the Messiah after he saw his dead brother resurrected. Now, this is important for anybody in the room who struggles with the fact that Jesus was resurrected, okay? And here's my proof. I'll put it on the screen for you. If Jesus could convince his brother that he was God, it must be true. How many of you have a sibling? If you went to your sibling and said, I'm God, what are they going to say to you? Come on. Seriously. Think about it. I mean, I know, I know it's funny, but listen, James did not believe Jesus when Jesus was alive. But once Jesus died, he sees his brother dead on a tree. 
And then he sees his dead brother holding his wrist, holding his feet, walking around and teaching. James's mind was changed by the evidence of a resurrected brother. And he changes everything in his life, and he becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He becomes a very important dude. You ever read the book of James? If you've never read the book of James, you should read it. Chronologically, it's the very earliest New Testament text. James was the first, like if you put your New Testament in chronological order, James would go first. And he wrote at a very applicable gospel on what it looks like for a person who's following Jesus to live their everyday life. It's a fantastic book. But Paul goes to James and to the other elders, and he's so excited to see them, right? And you know what they tell him? Bad news. They said, Paul, allegations have made it to Jerusalem that you're out, when you're out traveling the countryside, speaking to other Jewish people and the Gentiles, the allegations are is that you're telling all the Jewish people that they can ignore Moses and can ignore Torah, and they don't have to do circumcision, and they, don't have to, they can just ab- basically abandon everything that Jewish people believe. And Paul's like, that's not true. I came to Jerusalem for Pentecost. Like, I'm here because of this command. I'm here because of this. And like, I'm just telling you, that's the allegation, and the Jewish people are mad. Like, they're angry at you. And so James says, the brother of Jesus, the leader of Jerusalem church, James says, we have a plan. There's these four guys over here that have committed a vow. It's called the Nazarite vow. Too much to explain on that. You can Google it, right? But these four guys had had completed their Nazarite vow. And James says, if you will pay for their purification process and then go to temple with them, go to church with them, it'll let everybody know that you are full support of everything that we believe and teach as Jewish people. Paul says, no problem, I've got this. So he takes his resources and he pays for the purification of these four guys and they go to temple on Saturday. And when they walk in, there's some Jewish people who, from other areas of the country who have also come to Jerusalem for Pentecost and they see Paul there and they lose their head. And they mob Paul. Like they take him, they pull him out of temple and they're in the process of beating him to death. And as they're beating Paul, right, this is important, as they're beating Paul, the commander of the police force sees this commotion, gets wind of it, and rushes to the scene of the incident. Now, this is important to know. The way that the Roman world conquered the other folks was that they, if they were to conquer a new city, they would have said, hey, new city, you get to keep all your mission, vision, and values. You, get to, you, can, you can keep business as normal, but here's two things. You're going to pay taxes back to Caesar, and you're going to obey the law. Right? And so in Jerusalem, there is a political leadership of Rome where they've got governors and police that are making sure that the Jewish people can be Jewish. They can do whatever they want. But they've got to pay taxes back to Caesar, and they have to obey the law. And so these guys right now aren't obeying the law. They're beating a dude in the middle of the street. So the commander rushes in, stops all the beating, right, and um, arrests Paul. Sounds fair, Right? But he arrests Paul because he's like, well, guys, what's going on? Anybody watch the UFC fight last night? After the fight, pandemonium broke out, right? It's crazy. You can Google that too, right? Don't do it right now. Please don't do it right now, right? Because I will lose you completely, right? <laughs> but he stops the, the beating, and he arrests Paul because as he's trying to figure out what's going on, there's so much commotion he can't find out the truth. So he arrests Paul, and he's walking Paul back to the barracks. Remember, they didn't have police cars back then. He's walking Paul back to the barracks, and as they get close, Paul turns to him, and in Greek says, in the the Greek language, says to the commander, can I speak to the people? Now, this is important because uh, this is the first evidence of how Paul always knew his audience. So notice with me in Acts 21, verse 37 through 39. The commander says to Paul, you know how to speak Greek? 
Aren't you that Egyptian who started a revolt some time ago and led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? I was like, what? Right? He said, no, I'm a Jewish man from Tarsus, a citizen of an important city. Now I ask you, let me speak to the people. And so this guy is blown away that Paul's Greek is so good. And so he lets Paul speak, and Paul turns around to the crowd, and he doesn't speak Greek, now he speaks Aramaic. That's their language. Paul's a super smart cat. And he turns, and he basically gives them his testimony. And I'm going to read it, because he does it two times in this story. And I'll read it to you later. But Paul gives them his testimony, and he has them. Like, they're listening. They're not talking. They're real quiet. They're leaning into what Paul has to say until he gets to the last line. And he says, um, he talks about God's love for the Gentiles. And when Paul talks about God's love for the Gentiles, the mob is started right back up. And man, everybody gets mad. If you're curious, a Gentile is anyone who is not a Jew. So if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And what Jesus did was Jesus took God's love for the Jew and at the cross extended it to the whole entire world. And Paul and the disciples, their mission was parallel. There were some disciples who were focused on sharing the gospel of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to the Jewish people to make converts. For example, when Paul would travel around, travel around and talk, he always started in the synagogue. He would go to the Jew first until they kicked him out. And then he would go next to the next closest house that he could rent, and he would start church there. And many of the first church or people that he had convinced in synagogue would walk to the house and go to church with Paul. And then they would begin reaching the neighborhood of the Gentiles. And so Jesus' death and resurrection extended the gospel just beyond a specific people to the entire world who would say yes to Jesus. And that was Paul's mission. And when he would bring that up to the Jewish folks, man, they got really, really angry. And so when he brings it up again this time, even with the commander standing there, they start to beat Paul again, like they're going after him. And so the commander quickly gets Paul inside the barrack, and he says, we got to get to the bottom of this. We're going to interview you. And the way they're going to interview them, and it's a word that I, can't, I have a hard time saying, I can't pronounce it, but it's the word scourge. Is that the, did I say that right? Scourge. Basically, they're going to tie Paul down to a table and beat the snot out of him. Isn't that a great interview tactic? I do that at home with my kids sometimes. It really gets, it really gets to the bottom of it, right? Well, so they got Paul tied. I don't. Don't send me an email. I won't read it. Paul, they got Paul tied down. They got Paul tied down. And just as they're about to whip him, again, Paul is smart and he knows his audience. Because up to this point, Paul is a Jewish guy, a fiery Jew, right? But he's about to play an ace in the hole. And his ace says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. Is, is it lawful for you to beat an uncondemned Roman citizen? That's what he asked him. Put it on the screen. And when Paul says that, everybody that's about to hit him and beat him that's Rome, they lose their mind because there are tons of rights for Roman citizens. And one of those is due process to make sure that the person's guilty before they're beat. And so the commander is scared to death now that he almost inflicted pain on a Roman citizen. And Paul says, I want to talk to Caesar, which they had that right, which to me is crazy. Like nobody in this room can say, I demand to talk to President Donald Trump. And they go, okay, come on. Now back when Abraham Lincoln, you got to do that maybe or a lot. But anyway, so moving on. Okay. So here's what happens. The next day, now that the commander knows that Paul is Jewish and a Roman citizen, he's like, we got to get to the bottom of this in the, in the best way for the Roman citizen. So he brings in the Sanhedrin. And here's, I know I'm giving you a lot of SAT words, but the Sanhedrin was the leadership body of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So think of the religious elite. Think of the best, best, most smartest theologians. And you f- think of the Senate Judiciary Committee. That's kind of practical right now. And so the Senate Judiciary Committee of all the theologians come in. So you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you have Paul. 
And this commander is going to kind of serve as judge to kind of see what's going on. And everybody's going to make their accusations. Now, Paul knows that he can't win at all. He knows that these allegations are, like, he knows that he has no chance winning over these Sadducees and Pharisees. And like I said, Paul's a smart dude. So you know what he does? He says a word that just creates complete division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Because Paul was a Pharisee. Like, you can read this in the story. Like, Paul trained under the smartest of the smart. He's a brilliant mind. Like, he, Paul could have had the entire Old Testament memorized. So that one verse you're struggling with, Paul had the whole Old Testament memorized. He was smart. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees were vastly opposed to this one idea, and that was the idea of resurrection. So Paul says, am I really in trouble for bringing up the resurrection of the dead? And once he lobs that up, it would be like in, in, in the Senate Judiciary Committee, somebody bringing up abortion, gun control, immigration. Any of those three words automatically goes, whoop, and people go to their sides, right? When Paul lobs up resurrection, Sadducees are fighting mad, and the Pharisees are fighting mad, and Paul, Paul's just in there going, ah, this is awesome, <laughs> right? This is great, great. It gets so crazy that, and the people get so mad, when people get mad, people do stupid things. That they, um, the the Sadducees and the Pharisees team back up to have Paul killed. So there's a plot for Paul's life. Paul finds out about it, gets word to the commander. The commander proves that it's true, and in the cover of darkness, he sneaks Paul out of the city into Caesarea. And so when he gets there, he is now under the lordship or under the uh, what do you want to call it, the authority of a governor by the name of Felix. And so Felix was the governor that Rome had put in place over this city, okay? And so Felix is going to get to the bottom of this. So that commander sends Felix a note, says, hey, here's all that's going on. And would you please discover, find out, I don't think the guy's done anything bad, but these people are out for him. And would you just, and so now, here's what's fun. Paul gets to share the faith in Jesus Christ with the governor of a city. So now he's had the commander of the police force hearing this testimony over and over. And now Paul gets to stand before the governor and talk about Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. How cool is this, right? Isn't that a fun, great opportunity for Paul? And so notice this in Acts 24, verses 24 through 25, continuing the story. Several days later, when Felix came with his wife, Jerusalem, I don't know, whatever her name is. That sounds awesome. Uh, She was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him on the subject of faith in Jesus. Felix asked for Paul to come in, and I want you to talk to him about faith in Jesus. Now, as he spoke about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became, the governor, became afraid and replied, leave for now, but when I have an opportunity, I'll call for you. Let's just be honest and real. When you're presented with the gospel, your immediate reaction is not always yes. Sometimes it's fearful. Sometimes um, when you choose to follow Jesus and you roll through the implications in your mind of what that means, it can be fearful. And I will never lower the bar for what it looks like to follow Jesus, and neither did Paul, neither did Peter, and neither did any other of the apostles. Jesus demands first place in your life as a follower. He is not interested in anybody in the room liking him, giving him second place, third place. He, He makes the list. Jesus is not interested in that. He wants to be numero uno, the priority, the biggest thing in your life. And I'm telling you, read the scriptures and show me where God is comfortable and okay with any other position. You'll never find it. 
He wants to be first in your businesses, first in your home, first in your parenting, first in your friendships, first in your recreation, first in your hobbies. He wants to be first in everything that you do underneath that is pressed through the lordship and love of Jesus as Savior and Lord. And so when Paul presents that to Felix, guess what? Felix doesn't go, yay, I'll do that. He's a governor. He's got tons of power, tons of authority, people at his beck and call. He says, Paul, I can't handle any of this anymore. Now, Felix eventually retires, and the next guy that comes in is Festus. But I want you to notice something that I've overlooked numerous times reading this story. Acts 24, verse 27. After two years had passed, Festus succeeded Felix, and because Felix wanted to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison. Two years. It's one sentence in your Bible. But it was two years of Paul's life. Because Paul went to Jerusalem because he had to be there for Pentecost. And yes, God is giving Paul all of these opportunities to stand before very important people and share the gospel. Two years, his freedoms are taken away. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like that life is not fair, that things that have happened to you, and you feel like you're just wasting time, you feel like you're, just, like you're not getting to where you want to go? Paul was in prison for two years. What do you think Paul did in those two years? You ever read Ephesians? You ever read Colossians? You ever read Philippians? You ever read Philemon? Those four books that are in our New Testament were written the two years that Paul was in, was in prison. So while we sit around in our misery and whine and complain that life's not how we want it to be, you know what Paul does? He writes the Bible. Isn't that something? And what's so interesting specifically about Philemon Philemon is the letter that he wrote to the guy Philemon, asking Philemon to forgive his slave Onesimus. And he meets the slave in prison, because apparently this guy had gotten in trouble and ended up in jail with Paul. And Paul shares his faith with Jesus, and this guy accepts it. And Paul writes a letter back to this guy Philemon, who actually Paul knew because that guy Philemon was the leader of a house church that Paul started. And he says, hey, I need you to forgive this guy. He's now our brother. He's no longer our slave. It's crazy what God does on so many different levels when people are simply in a place, even when you're in prison, even when you're in a place that you don't like, when you're obedient to the gospel of Jesus and you don't whine and you don't complain and you don't say, man, I wish I was here. If I was there, then I would be rocking it for Jesus. No, in prison, Paul wrote the Bible. What's your excuse? What's my excuse? We get to be faithful. Two years. Now we have this guy Festus who's in control, and Festus brings in his buddy King Agrippa II. King Agrippa's grandfather was the guy who killed all the little baby boys in Bethlehem trying to kill Jesus. So there's this history of this kingdom. Who was a, he was a Jewish guy. He was a Jewish king who was over that area that Rome had said, hey, you can be in place. You're going to pay taxes, and you're going to be law-abiding, but that you're going to be in place. But, 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 but... He didn't want his throne to be overcome, so his grandpa tried to wipe out the babies to make sure that he killed Jesus. Well, of course, we know that didn't happen. And now, all of a sudden, Paul is standing in front of the grandson of the king who tried to kill the faith, before the faith had even started. And this is what I want to read to you from God's Word, okay? And so this is not on the screen, but this is Paul's testimony, and it's King Agrippa's response, okay? So if you have your Bible, I'm going to be in Acts chapter 26, starting in verse 4. You can pull it up on your, on, your, uh, on your device there. If you have your Bible, Acts 26, starting in verse 4. I'll give you 10 seconds to get there. 
Okay? Here we go. I'm reading from, um, I don't know, the Bible. Okay, so, <laughs> verse 4. All the Jews, this is Paul, he, so he stands up. Okay, so here's the context. Paul stands up in front of the king, Agrippa II, and Festus, and all the other officials in the room. Huge audience. Okay, he says this. All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time. If they are willing to testify that according to the the, the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand on trial because of the hope in what God promised to our ancestors. The promise our 12 tribes hope to reach as they earnestly serve him night and day. King Agrippa, I am being accused by the Jews because of this hope. Why do any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? In fact, I myself was convinced that it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I actually did this in Jerusalem, and I locked up many of the saints in prison. Since I had received authority from that, uh, I received authority for that from the chief priest. When they were put to death, I was in agreement against them. In all the synagogues, I often punished them and tried to make them blaspheme. Since I was terribly enraged at them, I pursued them even to foreign cities. I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority and the commission from the chief priest, King Agrippa, while on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brightest, brighter than the sun, and it was shining around me and those traveling with me. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, that was Paul's previous name, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them. And Paul's response is, real funny, God, ain't no way. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness. Talking to the Gentile people, I'm going to send you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and all the regions of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. You need to highlight that. The message of the gospel is not just believe, it's to repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. That means trust in and live like Jesus. Not just pray a prayer and see in heaven. Church friends, serving, grow. Verse 21, for this reason, the Jews seized me because of my preaching to the Gentiles. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and were trying to kill me. To this very day, I have had to, I've had help from God, and I stand to testify to both the small and great, saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer, and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. Verse 24. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, that governor that invited Agrippa in, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, You're out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. But Paul replied, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. For the king knows about these matters, and I can speak boldly to him. For I am convinced that none of these things has escaped his notice, since this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, 
Do you believe the prophets? I know you believe, right? He's trying to pull Agrippa in, right? Here's Agrippa's response. And this passage here is why I wanted to teach this message. Agrippa said, Agrippa said to Paul, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? Paul said, I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. Today, I stand before kings and I stand before queens because everybody in this room is in charge of your life. We live in a society where you get a vote, you get a say, and that our flesh is our Lord and we become the ruler of our life. And what I'm asking you today is the same thing that Paul asked Felix, that Paul asked Festus, and that Paul said to King Agrippa, are you willing to take off your crown? Are you, real, are you willing to get off your throne so that Jesus can take his place as the Savior and Lord of your life? And your response is probably like King Agrippa's. Matt, are you really trying to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? And my response back is, I don't care if it's easy or hard, I just hope that you would say yes to Jesus because the Scriptures say that one day, at one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And man, when that day comes for me, it's a get-to, not a have-to. It's a get-to, not a have-to. It's a willing, let me get on my knee and let me thank you, Jesus, for who you have been in my life and who you are in my life. And I don't know what King Agrippa decided. I don't know what Festus or Felix, I have no idea what they did with that message of the gospel. But church family, to you, hear the life of Paul. Hear the proclamation of the gospel that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, and that Jesus resurrected. And if he did those three things, specifically the resurrection, he deserves the position of authority in your life. And will you accept that? Michelle and Curtis are going to come up, and they're going to lead us in a song called Breathe. And as they do, I'm asking us as a church family, collectively, and then I'm asking you as an individual, what are you going to do with that? Because here, listen, this gets so real. There's this scripture that says that at, we're all going to stand before Jesus and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Or he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And we don't see that conversation happening in a group setting. Like the nine o'clock New City service isn't going to go into the gates of heaven together. And some of you are hoping you can scoot down real low and sneak in with me, Right? But the Lord's going to look you in the eye. And he's not going to ask you what you did. He's going to ask you if he knew you. I don't know if this is hard for you to receive or if it's easy for you to receive, but can I share it with you? That you are loved by God. He loves you so much. He loves you so much that he gave his very best, not one of, but the best. He sent his son, Jesus to live a blameless, perfect life that we can look to, that he can show us how to be human in a jacked up world. And then this pure, sinless man, Jesus, gives. he was not murdered, he gave up his life. He went to the cross, he became our sacrifice that anyone who would believe in him, that believed that he was the Messiah, would not perish but have everlasting life. And the invitation is, will you confess Jesus to be the Messiah, the Savior, acknowledge that you need him, and then two, he didn't stay dead. Three days later, on the third day, he resurrected from the grave and he has power over the grave, power over death. And he says, I have earned the right to be your leader. And I think this is the church in America. I know you believe that Jesus lived and died, 
You probably even believe that he resurrected, but you haven't given him lordship of your life yet. You haven't given him the place to be in charge of your brain and how you think, to be in charge of your heart and how you respond and how you interact with people. You haven't given him leadership of your hands and your feet and how you go about living and impacting this world that we live in. But that's the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel is to repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. In John, it says that by this, God is made like pleased that there are fruits that prove that you are his disciples. And so during this song, I'm going to stand over here. I'm going to turn my mic off. I'm going to get out in front of this camera. And if you're here this morning and today's your day where you're going to do, like you're going to receive that, I want to pray with you. I want to celebrate that with you. I'm going to ask Randy Bartell and Diana to come on up. I'm going to ask Andrew Black and Andrea to come on up too. And then these are just two other couples. If you need to pray with somebody, you can pray with them. But maybe today is the day that you say, you know what, Jesus, you've already had my heart. I, I believe in you, but today I'm going to give you the position of lordship. I'm going to take off my crown and I'm going to give you the throne of my life and you're going to become my Lord. Man, let somebody know that. Would you stand with me this morning? And as we sing, you respond the way that the Father is asking.